we gather to treasure Christ above everything else. There is no greater treasure. And so, what a glorious thing to be able to sing it together. I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Esther. If you've got a paper Bible, open it up to the book of Psalms, which is kind of right smack dab in the middle. Go back towards the beginning. You'll run through Job into Esther. And so, um, in Esther, we are in chapter 7, and every... Uh, single uh, chapter we have preached a sermon on, so we're seven weeks in now. Uh, this is week seven, Esther chapter seven, and I want us to uh, dive into that together. The title of the message is For Your Good. Our great God is rescuer, and that's what we see throughout the book, God as rescuer. And today it is the, uh, the aim of the time is that we would just be convinced that he is for the good of his people. And so, as you're turning there or clicking there on your phone, however it rolls for you, I want to give you just a brief update. Uh, one is uh, just a reminder to invite you, uh, those who are members, to come tonight to our family meetings. Uh, 4.30, we're going to eat and spend time together. Looking forward to that and a time to just be able to hear what God is doing. There's going to be testimonies. There will be times of prayer. Um, and yes, there will be Hunter and the Budget, the much-anticipated moment of the evening. So um, we want you to come, please, and it will be a, a great time at 4.30. Um, some of you um, might not have heard updates on uh, Nick and Brittany Smith last week. If you were here, I shared that uh, Nick had um, a sports accident, had a collapsed lung, almost lost him um, on Saturday evening. His heart stopped uh, for six seconds. Um, and, uh, but thanks be to God that he is doing well. He is at home and he is healing. He'll be recovering for a couple of weeks. Uh, just be in prayer for uh, Brittany, especially um, the emotional trauma of that. Um, uh, is, it can take a toll. So just pray for her and her strength as she uh, is healing as well emotionally going through a lot of that. But they are doing well overall and are healing. Also wanted to bring up there's been just a we can we'll talk about this tonight as a church and spend some time in prayer been an unusual amount of sickness and um not just like cold sickness but hospitalization type things going on in our church and one of them is sean doherty sean doherty um has was hospitalized i think it was monday then he went home and then um wednesday he was put back into the hospital and he is still there, and they do not know fully what is going on. And so I um, got a text from uh, Joanna Kaswara this morning, who has been kind of doing some updates, and uh, they just they really don't know what all is happening. He's got a little fluid around the heart, and so we just want to be in prayer for, um, for Sean and for Natalie, his wife, and just praying for, uh, for healing there at Duke Hospital uh, in Durham. So... Um, I just told them that I would be faithful to bring that up and that we as a church would pray. So let's do that, and then we'll dive into the book of Esther. Father, we bring to you everything. And we hurt because sickness exists and disease exists and hospitalization having to happen and father we just want to bring all of this to you and ask for you to come and to heal we pray for sean and natalie 
Father, we pray that you would right now, through the prayers of your people, be a real, tangible, palatable presence in that hospital room to Sean and Natalie. That right now they would know a mysterious sense of comfort. There would be a remarkable sense of your presence. That the love that was unmistakably displayed on the cross would cover them as the dearest of hugs and as the nearest of friends. Father, please sustain them and strengthen them. And we ask, oh God, that you would heal Sean's body. We pray that you would grant doctors wisdom and understanding. Father, we pray that his healing would be quick. That God, that his fatigue, shortness of breath. We pray that all of the, the difficult physical signs, that those would subside. And Father, that you would restore him. Father, I ask that you would also continue to not only be a means of strength for the Doherty's, but also for the Smiths, Nick and Brittany, and we ask that you would just continue to heal Nick. We ask that you would emotionally comfort and grant peace to Nick and Brittany. Father, it is so difficult as we bring such hard things, our, our stomachs can feel sick. And yet your promise says, for those who love you, you are working all things, all things for our good. And so right now, Father, please draw near and strengthen our faith to believe those precious promises. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. It's for your good. That was a line I grew up detesting from my parents. It's for your good. I really like, you're lying to me right now. It is not for my good. Don't tell me it is for my good. And then I became a parent. And I said the same crazy line to my kids. It's for your good. Because I was convinced, it's a true statement, it's for your good. But they're not convinced, especially when they're younger. For your good, I'm doing this for your good. I have your good in mind. Because love does whatever it must to do the best for that person. But that is so hard to see, right? When I tell my little boy... You only have an hour of Xbox today. And you're only going to play it on the weekends. That seems like justice has gone awry. It seems like there is a crime that is being committed. Because why can't I play as often as I like? Or when you say, okay, it's bedtime. Really? Yes, really, it's bedtime. It's time to go to bed. It's wise. Why can't we just stay up as long as we want to? Well, because I have seen you as the Tasmanian devil when you did not get sleep. 
and you're running around, and I have seen myself, and it's just clear we need sleep, so let's go to bed. You know, it's, it's, it's for your good that you go to bed at 8, my littlest one, because you're going to wake up at 6.30 to go to school. Or, most recently at Halloween, injustice of injustices, and that is you can't eat all of the candy that you got, right? Like, literally, last year, my daughter was carrying a bag, and it was so heavy, the handles ripped, okay? I'm talking, like, lots of candy, okay? We know, deep down, the older we get, like, this, it's not good for you, but, so we say, it's for your good that you only get a few. It's for your good. There was another story that came to my mind, which is a little more serious. I remember my cousin, my cousin who began to get in with the wrong crowd, chose drugs and significant lying to his parents, began to steal things, cars, things out of houses, and his parents kept pressing in, my aunt and uncle, kept pressing in and pressing in expressing love, trying to help him. Times when the police had to get involved, they were faithful. We love you. We love you. Don't choose this route. We're for you. We care for you. They fought for him and fought for him. Nothing changed. And I was young. My cousin is one year older than me. I was young when in his teenage years, my parents told me that they packed a bag for him, put it in the car, and told him that they were going someplace, did not tell him the destination, and they dropped him off at a Christian-influenced type reform school and gave him his bag and drove away and wept at having to leave their son. And I tell you, it saved his life. It saved his life. Today, he's not only clean, hanging out with the right people. He's married with children. He loves Jesus. And he's raising the next generation to love Jesus. The story is not about the method. The story is about difficult things happening that are for your good. And there are times in our lives when the hard thing happens. And it seems like there's no light in the room. Yes, God, you tell me that there's light in the room. And all I see is darkness. You tell me that this is for my good, but all I see are the clouds of bad. You tell me that you are at work, and all I see are things going the opposite direction. And God tells us, I am working for your good. Book of Esther, in this moment, 
I believe this chapter, this book as a whole is written so that we would begin to catch a glimpse that in some of the darkest times, in some of the most difficult moments, our God is still at work for the good of his people. Counter to everything that our brains tell us and our eyes behold, our hearts, by the working of the Holy Spirit, can be given a sense of hope and confidence that God's word is true and that he is at work even when the suffering comes. He's at work. And the book of Esther describes this in two scenes. Describes this in two scenes. Scene one is the scene where Esther intercedes with the king. And scene two is what Haman meant for evil. God means for good. Two scenes that we have here in Esther chapter 7. Scene one, Esther is found interceding on behalf of her people in front of the king. And scene two is when Haman is intending evil, God is intending good. So let's dive in here. Scene one, Esther interceding with the king. Although we're going to be focusing in on chapter seven, I think the best place kind of to on-ramp it is verse 13 of chapter six. Look at Esther chapter six, verse 13 the word of God reads as follows. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. So if you're just joining us, haven't been here for the story, you might want to know what is the everything that had happened to this man Haman. First of all, you need to know Haman is the enemy of the story. He is the one that is against God's people, but he is also the right-hand man of the king, man of great position and great power. There are three other characters in the story. There is King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, throughout the annals of history. And he is a very self-serving king who's just been defeated by the Greeks. He comes home. He's already kicked his wife Vashti out, and he has made himself a new wife, which introduces the third character of the story. Her name is Esther. Esther was orphaned and raised by her cousin Mordecai, who became a father figure for her, and both Esther and Mordecai are Jews. And the tragedy of tragedies is Haman, an Agagite, that means from the people of the Amalekites who have a long history dating back to the Exodus of hatred towards the Jews, he has been given power. And as he goes out into the city, Mordecai will not bow and give honor to Haman, who is second in command, and it incites that racist hatred that Haman has had for the Jews. And he has it out for Mordecai. And so what happens is Haman convinces the king to to put his signet ring upon an edict to annihilate and kill all of the Jews. And when that ring is pressed in upon that edict, it is irreversible. There's nothing you can do. And when that edict is impressed upon, mourning goes throughout the empire because the Jews know their lives are about to end. Mordecai is seen in chapter 4 
wearing sackcloth and ashes and wailing throughout the city. And he thinks that the only option that he has is to go to his kind of adopted daughter, his cousin Esther, and plead for her to go to the king. Because she's the only one that has access into the king's throne in order that this edict might somehow be changed, that this verdict might somehow be different. But when Esther is asked, she's like, don't you understand? He hasn't asked me to come in for 30 days. And if I walk in there, I'm basically signing my death certificate. Because if he doesn't take his golden scepter and hold it out to me, I'm done. It's over. And he says, if you don't do this, Mordecai does. If you don't do this, Esther, somebody will. But maybe you are in this position for such a time as this. And God does a work in her heart so that she then sacrifices herself. And she says, if I perish, I perish. She tells Mordecai and all the Jews to fast three days and three nights. She and her attendants fast three days and three nights and then she goes. And she walks into that courtroom. I can't imagine the moment where death is impending and the king sees her. And by miracle of miracles, the God of the universe causes the crazy self-centered king to extend out the scepter. And she comes forward. She touches the scepter. And he says, what can I do for you? And she says, I'd like to throw a feast for you and for Haman. So they have a feast. And while they're eating, the king asks again, what can I do for you? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. What can I do for you? And she says, we're actually... can." I will tell you, but let's do a second feast the next day. And he says, okay. And so in preparation for that feast, Esther kind of fades away from the scene. Haman is on cloud nine because he's been invited into this wonderful feast. He's been risen to a place of honor. He goes out, though, in all of his joy, sees Mordecai, who still won't bow to him, and gets so angry, he goes home to his wife and the advisors, and they all make a plan to erect a six-and-a-half-story, 75-foot-tall beam upon which he wants to impale Mordecai for not bowing to him. And that would be this sign of signs that... This rolls the ball down the hill of annihilating all the Jews. And so Mordecai is doing this overnight, and it's while overnight right before this feast happens when the king can't sleep, asks for the chronicles. The chronicles are read to him. That's the, all the great things that have happened in his reign. And as he reads, Mordecai's name pops up because God's at work. And he reads about Mordecai, and he says, Has Mordecai ever been honored? For saving my life, which was recorded in chapter 2 of the book of Esther, when he saved his life. And they said, no, he hasn't. And then just circumstance upon circumstance, no, God is at work, Haman walks in. The enemy. The one who's ready to impale Mordecai. And he walks in in order to convince the king that Mordecai needs to die. And as he walks in, the king says, hey, Haman, what would you do for someone you really want to honor. And Haman thinks, that's me, so I'm going to lay it on thick. So he says, you know, put a robe on this dude, march him around the city, you know, tell everybody how great he is. And so he looks, the king looks at Haman in the eye and says, great idea, go do that for Mordecai. Go do that for your worst of enemies. And so the punch in the stomach hits, 
the beauty of justice comes and Mordecai is paraded around by Haman and Haman is declaring this is the man that gets honor by the king. And then, verse 13 of chapter 6, that's all that has happened. Chapter 6, verse 13 says this, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, they're saying all that just happened to you is your fall, buddy. If he's of the Jewish people, you're not going to overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And verse 14, while they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to this feast, the second feast that Esther has prepared. Verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Esther, Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And now the moment we've been waiting for, will the queen make the request? Will she intercede on behalf of the people who need her to speak up and advocate for them before the throne of the king? She speaks. Verse 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish. And my people for my request. What's your request, King Esther? That my life and the life of my people be spared. She goes on. For we have been sold. Which is an allusion back to Haman's plot in chapter 3. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Do you see what her plan is? She's now appealing to the vanity of the king. And she's basically saying, now, if the plan was to make us slaves, I wouldn't be here, because that would hurt you, O king. It would get rid of all of your labor. I'm, I'm not trying to hurt you, king. But instead, part of your kingdom is going to be annihilated and killed. I'm going to be killed. And then verse 5, the king responds. Now before we go to his response, what you need to see is the courage, but also the contrasting situation that we find ourselves between Esther's walking into the throne to intercede on behalf of a people, and that contrast between the privilege we have to walk into the throne of God and intercede on behalf of others. Why would you make the contrast? Because Jesus tells us that every single part of the Old Testament is pointing to him. It's all about him. And what we do know from the New Testament is Jesus is the great intercessor. He is always interceding on our behalf. What that means is he is always praying for you, child of God. Always. 
the highs and the lows, he's always praying for you. But what do we see about Esther interceding? When she walks into this king, she is afraid for her life. Yet when we walk in to our king, we are guaranteed life. We're guaranteed acceptance. She was in terror as to whether she would be accepted or not. When she had to appeal to his vanity, we have the privilege to boldly go in and appeal to his mercy. Because our king is a different king. He's a merciful king. And when this crazy king, this self-serving king, was being approached by Esther, he says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Gladman texted me and said, hey, I saw another parallel, and it's this. So I said, okay, and I'm using it now. Wrote it in, in between services. Sorry, first service. Our king offers us everything. Heirs of everything. The contrast is beautiful. As Esther is interceding with the king, we need to understand our king is always for our good when we approach his throne. We appeal to his mercy. And we know that he is good. He is not whimsical he is not fickle, he is not punishing, but he is disciplining or he is encouraging. He is always for our good. Always. Romans 8 tells us he's always working for our good. Psalm 23 verse 6, only goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. He's only doing goodness and mercy to you. Is the God that we walk into his throne. And so the invitation here is to set up the contrasting kings and the privilege that we have to intercede on behalf of others. The privilege we have to walk into his throne room and pray. Every follower of Jesus has had an answered prayer. At minimum, if you've been a follower of Jesus for 30 seconds, you've had an answered prayer. Because you have cried out to the living God and said, I am a sinner. I cannot rescue myself. I need the death of Jesus in my place. Oh God, forgive me. Make me new. Make me your child. I cannot save myself. Save me. And then the desires are shifted. The eyes are opened. Which is what caused you to even call out to him in the first place. Sovereign mercy. Prayer answered. Child of God, your heart has been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And in that moment when you cry out to him, you stand justified, declared not guilty. He's answered your prayers. But those of you who have walked with Jesus, you know you know that he has answered prayers. Some prayers for healing, physically. Some prayers for peace when you are emotionally distraught. Some prayers, some of you, prayers for a child or prayers for a spouse. Prayers for direction. 
you have seen God answer prayers. And some of us are like, yeah, but I've also seen him not answer prayers. I get it. I get it. Our eyes are tempted to look at the clouds rather than the beams of the sun that are breaking through. Our God is always at work. Always answering prayers. But just because it doesn't come right when we pray it, or just because it doesn't come how we pray it, doesn't mean He is not answering. The advocacy of the Scriptures is that even when you're interceding for others, or when you're calling out to God for yourself, and He says, wait, or not now, suffering comes, or suffering persists, He is still at work. He is still at work. He is still working for your good. He is still listening to your prayers. Do not believe the lie of the devil that he is absent, that his love has ceased, that he has run away from you. He is still working. And Romans 5 tells us this. Romans 5 verse 3 says this. But we rejoice in our sufferings. It doesn't even seem possible. It almost seems like a lie. How can you rejoice as tears of pain are flowing down your face? How does that happen? Because of these next verses. Rejoice in our sufferings because we know that Suffering produces endurance. Our suffering is working. It works something. And it works an endurance. What's the endurance? It's, a, it's an ongoing confidence that God is still at work. What does it mean when suffering works? What does it mean when your stubbed toe is at work? Your stubbed toe has nothing to do with working on your heart. It's saying that in your suffering, God is working. And he's working something that required that suffering in order to produce a confidence. A confidence that you could only have when you knew God was still with you at your lowest moment. A confidence that you could only get when you saw the promises of God become 3D right before your eyes. A confidence that you could only get when you lost everything else around you and God was the only light you could see. It's necessary. But it's working. God is at work. And He is producing in you, O sufferer, confidence, an endurance, a provenness, and that provenness is working something else, which means God is still at work. And what does it work? It works a character, a character that can take the next blow, a character that can help others in their suffering, a character that is characterized more by love than you were before the suffering came, a character that can empathize in ways that you could have never empathized were the pain not to have come to you, a character that God is working in your life. And that character 
God is working through that character to produce a hope. A hope that because God has been with you in this suffering and he is developing you and giving you confidence, as he's doing that, you have a hope that he keeps all of his promises and that he's always with you and that he'll never leave. There's a hope. And that hope that's in your heart is the love of God that's been poured out into your life by the Holy Spirit. God has said, I showed you my love on the cross, and then I pour that love into your heart so that as you suffer, you will cling to me because I will never let you go. And that suffering is working something. And so now, all of a sudden, it's new lenses, it's new goggles to look through at all of our suffering to say, no, God has not stopped working. Actually, this is the very foundation out of which he does work. And when you begin to see that and you know it, joy is possible through the tears. Because you know, you don't know how, but you know that morning may last for a night. But joy will come in the morning. We don't know when that morning will be, but we trust our God. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Dear friends, with that hope, go to our God. Don't try to handle it yourself. There was a moment as I was putting my little boy to bed where he had had a rough day, struggling to obey at times. We all have it. His daddy has it. His mama has it. All his brothers and sisters have it. As I was looking at him, he looked kind of discouraged as he was laying to bed. And I pray for him every night, as try to every night. And as I was sitting there with him before I prayed, I said, are you okay? He said, I want to talk about it, daddy. I was like, you know it's safe to talk to us. He says, I don't want to talk about it, daddy. I said, uh, Son, it, 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 it won't be solved by holding it in. You sure you don't want to talk to Daddy about it? I don't want to talk about it, Daddy. I said, then why don't you tell me this? Just say one word. Does it make you sad? Or are you angry? Could have also added, are you afraid? Could you just say one word? I don't want to talk about it, Daddy. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I was like, just give me one word. I'm sad. Thanks, son. I'll pray for you. But I also said this. I said, I want you to know that the devil's not telling you the truth. Because you said you were afraid that if you talked about it, it would stick in your mind. But the Bible tells us in Psalm 32 that healing actually comes when you speak it to God. Not by holding it in. You can't solve it yourself, son. And I always, always, always want you to be able to share it with your mom and daddy. Would you promise me something? Would you just, when I leave, I won't make you share with me this time. But would you try to share it with God before you fall asleep? I don't know if he did or not. But the principle is this. Esther was afraid. To intercede on behalf of these people. And we too can be afraid. 
Be afraid to enter into the throne room of God for others, fearful that our prayers won't be answered. Sometimes fearful that God won't hear us or that he doesn't care about some of the things going on in our life. I want to hold up the contrasting kings and I want you to see that our God invites you into a throne room of grace. And I don't know about you, sometimes I need in the moment application. It felt pretty weird for me to talk about the need to pray and then not stop and pray. Okay, just make sure you pray sometime. Let's keep moving on to these points. So I want to take one minute and remind you of the king that invites you into the throne room to intercede on behalf of others and remind you that he answers prayer. And even when it seems so bleak, you don't see a way out. He hears your prayers and he is always, always, always at work for his people. And so go to him. Intercede. For some of you, it could be someone who does not know Jesus. Intercede. For some of you, it could be you know someone who is battling some sickness. Intercede. For some of you, it, you are so personally burdened, I want you to know Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Call out to God and go to him. And go to him with this verse in your mind. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. There could not be more contrasting thrones. The throne of vanity versus the throne of grace. The throne of death versus the throne of life. Go into his throne and experience a God who says, you will find mercy to help in time of need. Grace for your need. And so, we'll just stop and I encourage you to boldly approach the throne of God. Take that one name or that one burden and pray and then I'll close us and we'll dive into the second scene briefly. Let's pray. Father, break down whatever barrier it is that might keep us from coming to you. And help us to be characterized as a people who pray. Father, I pray that we would not wait until we're better, we would pray. I pray that we would not wait until we have fixed ourselves. That will never happen. May we pray. 
I pray that we would not wait until our faith is as tall as a mountain, but even when it's the size of a mustard seed, we would pray. And Father, I pray that you would give us the confidence to believe that you hear us, that you're always at work, and we can come to you, our gracious King. Help us to be intercessors for others. Characterize our church by prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Briefly, the second scene is the scene of Haman. What Haman meant for evil, God meant for good. And look at verse 5 with me. Esther has just made the king aware that her and all of her people are about to be killed. And look at verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to King Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who's the one who dared to do this? I'm picturing that this is probably laced with Persian profanities. This guy has proven himself not to be the most upstanding individual, and he is not happy right now that someone has devised to kill his wife. Okay? He's already lost one. He doesn't want to go through this again. Who is it? Who's the one that's dared to take your life? And now Esther, feeling a little more emboldened in verse 6, says, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And he's right there in the room. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king was so angry, he couldn't contain himself. He goes out into the garden palace, verse 7. But Haman stayed in there before the queen, begging for her life. And so you find her on you find him on his knees begging for his life before the queen, and then the king comes back in. And when he comes back in, he sees Haman bowed down, begging, and it looks as like, this is what anger does, it distorts your view. The king comes in and he says, oh, so now you're trying to attack my wife? Be gone. In verse 7, or verse 9, we see, that they, or in verse 8, that we see that he covered his head, the head of Haman, which was a normal thing to do for the criminal in the Persian Empire. And then verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows, or this wooden beam that's been erected to impale Mordecai, he says, The gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. You kind of threw that in there, right? The guy who tried to save the king was trying to or Haman was trying to kill the guy who saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, this, this pole, 50 cubits high, 75 feet tall, verse 10, and the king said, well then hang him on it. Hang Haman on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, that is this wooden beam that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The next to the last sentence is where I got the title for this scene. What Haman had prepared or meant for evil, God had prepared and meant for good. What's the good in that moment? It's the good of justice. And your heart does celebrate. There is appropriate joy that comes when justice is served. Why is it justice? It's justice because Haman is described in verse 7, or I'm sorry, in verse 6, look at it with me, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. 
Wickedness in the scriptures has consequences. Listen to Psalms chapter 1, verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like a chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. That means they won't judge others. They'll be judged. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not get all the blessings that the children of God get. 1 John 2.16 tells us even more about the wicked, about those who do wicked things, that is. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but but is from the world. These describe Haman. He had the desires of the flesh because he wanted revenge upon Mordecai. He had pride in his possessions. You find him talking all the time about how much he had. He had lust of the eyes. He couldn't be satisfied with a place of honor when he saw Mordecai. He wanted more. He wanted more death. He wanted more of his way, more security. You saw the pride of life where he esteemed his own greatness and placed himself first in his own thoughts and words and deeds. He was deceptive to the king. And this description in Psalm 73, a description of the wicked, describes Haman. Verse 6 of Psalm 73 says this, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. That was Haman. And that's why that justice seems so sweet. Because he was against God and against God's people. But I want to end with this. Let's be clear. Any justice that anyone receives is justice that everyone deserves. Yes, you're supposed to celebrate at justice being served. But we also are meant to hear about all these expressions of wickedness and hate wickedness. Hate sin. Run from sin. And we're meant to look at this and say, were it not for the mercy of our king, we deserve to be hung on a beam and impaled. And that would be just. Let's be clear. We are wicked. And in need of a savior. Christ hung in the place of the wicked. Of sinners. And all of human history was forever altered. And salvation was made available to any who would believe. But it begins by acknowledging that justice should have been served upon us and we are walking around as testimonies of grace. This is exactly what was happening in the story of Joseph. The brothers had sold Joseph into slavery in the book of Genesis. And as they sold him into slavery, they deserved to die. But Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, Joseph speaks to them and says this. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
It's God's place to bring justice. Am I in that place? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God purposed it, meant it, ordained it for good to bring it about so that the many people should be kept alive as they are today. This parallels the story of Esther. What Haman meant as an instrument of evil, God redeemed as an instrument of his good justice and as something that preserved his people. So, some of you who might battle with arrogance, thinking only about the wickedness of others, run from wickedness and run into the arms of Jesus. But I end with this. Some of you, you cannot get the voices of condemnation out of your head. You get stuck in the grief of conviction and you need to hear another word. You need to hear this. What the devil meant for evil. The cross of Jesus Christ. What he meant to be the death of the perfect son of God. Led yes to his death. But to the son's impalement for us. He hung cursed on a tree. And in so doing, he was actually unraveling the devil's schemes. He was crushing the only plan the devil had to rule the world. And like, just like Haman, the beam erected for the demise of humanity and the defeat of the Son of God, it turned into a gateway of deliverance. The death of death, the upending of the devil's dream and the glory of the greatest foe of the devil, Jesus himself. The tomb is empty. Freedom is possible. Heaven's favorite, Jesus himself was crushed on a beam for you so that justice would be exalted and you could be justified. This is the gospel from the book of Esther. You have not been treated and I have not been treated like my sins deserve. Instead, we look upon that beam as some mysterious sense of God working all things for good and trusting him with every part of our lives. And when we wrestle with that self-condemnation, we take our sin to the cross and we see that it was impaled for us. It was nailed there. We are set free. And now we have no fear. We need not fear when we go into his presence because he is a king of mercy and not of judgment against us. He's a king of love. And so I encourage you with this last verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for your good. Let's pray. Father, because you are working good, I pray that we would go to you in prayer. Because you are working good, I pray that you, we would trust you that even what the devil means for evil, all the suffering in the world, what the devil wants to use to uproot our faith, you are at working to solidify our faith and to make your people cling tighter to the cross. Father, I pray that we would live in confidence today that if you did not spare your own son but gave him over for us all, how will we not also in Christ have all things.